tip towards yeah. it. Like okay. um, all right, we're ready to go. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. So my name is Oliver Robinson, and uh, yeah, I work in a psychology department. Uh, although our department is, uh, we do a degree in psychology with counselling, and the counselling has a, I would say, a more holistic ethos than the psychology. So perhaps it's a bit less reductionist than some psychology departments. My field is adult development. I've written a book called Development Through Adulthood. Um, and so I'm going to give you a developmental context on higher education today, uh, looking at tra transitions. And I'm going to pitch you that higher education is an extremely challenging process, uh, experience from, from, from its, its nature as having lots of transitions within it, but also as it normatively sitting within a very transitional part of the lifespan. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. There we go. We are? Yep. First bullet, please. So, yes, so approximately 90% of higher education students in the UK are between the ages of 18 to 28, and about 82% between the ages of 18 to 25. Now, so, yes, there are mature students, but we can say that for the vast majority, they sit within a particular developmental stage, and that uh, stage is widely referred to as emerging adulthood by Jeff Arnett, but it's been referred to as by a bunch of other things as well. Some more colloquial terms like uh, adolescence or the boomerang age, uh, kid, kid adulthood, and so on and so forth. Now, the, the recognised features of this life stage are that most people within it, the majority of people in, their life, in that life stage, if you ask them, seem to be quite ambiguous about whether they're adults or not. There's an ambiguity about whether they're in the stage of adolescence or adulthood, or, or, or feel fully like, or like they possess the attributes that have traditionally been associated with being an adult. And uh, this, this ambiguity over, over, over status is, it, it can be referred to as the maturity gap, and some uh, authors and researchers have referred to it as that. And I'll give you an interesting statistic on the maturity gap, which is broadly the gap between biological, psychological, and social maturity. Uh, and that's that in 150 years ago, the average age of puberty was over 16. And around that age, people were typically heading into the workforce around the age of 17 to 18 and getting married around that age as well. So you'd be biologically and socially maturing at about the same time. There's sort of a series of transitions. And of course, you'd be legally recognised as an adult around that time as well. And it all happened quite seamlessly. Now, puberty's come down to, at last count, about just under 11. 10.6 the last count. And it's going crazy in terms of the, the rate at which puberty is coming down. Quite disconcerting to a degree because people... You see children biologically maturing so young. Now, of course, legal adulthood is still set at 18 in terms of that's the age of majority legally in most countries. Uh, but then people don't enter the, a, a settled set of adult commitments, at least as socially perceived, potentially until their mid-20s. So there's a strange, ambiguous gap in the middle uh, in which many higher education students sit. And higher education has to be seen as part of that. So if you just ping all the bullets down, yours. Uh, and we see here, that I've, I've just set some of the features out of emerging adulthood, where we got to. So it's highly exploratory, highly non-committal, and that relates intricately to demographic changes over recent years, including, for example, people getting married less if they do so much later, entering the workforce later, and higher education, again, can be seen as a changing of the, of the, of the developmental trajectory uh, of, of human life. And actually, you can see higher education not as just a way of getting people degrees, but as keeping people growing up for longer letting them not have to settle down for longer because you've got a good excuse because you've got three years of supposed extra education. It's also an extremely transition-heavy period of the lifespan. There are more residents and relationship transitions in this age group than in any other point in the lifespan, making it extremely unstable. 
that's for students and non-students. Next slide, I've got this build. I'm actually going to come over and tap okay. for you. Sure. So we've got here, a, 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 a just, just going to build up a little graph for you. So here are some things. Stress, personality, trait change, drug dependence, alcohol dependence, criminal convictions, schizophrenia diagnosis, and bipolar diagnosis. I'm going to show you when these peak in the lifespan, birth to death. So there's 1828 stress. Uh, on the most recent count, these are all from empirical studies, peaks mid uh, early 20s if you plot it across age. Personality trait change neatly fits between 18 and 28. In other words, we, get, we, we change most in terms of our personality traits relative to any other points in the lifespan. Then, drug dependence peaks then. Alcohol dependence peaks then. Criminal convictions peak then. Schizophrenia diagnoses peak then. Bipolar diagnoses peak then. So you can see that what we're looking at is a, is a highly vulnerable period in the lifespan that we're at a whole confluence of problem peaks of a whole variety. University sits in this developmental phase. It has to be seen as part of it uh, and, as I say, as an active choice uh, within it. So, there we go. So this highly unstable developmental period is a context for most who are at university. Now, so that's the transitional context in which higher education fits, but the actual process itself is almost, I was going to say farcically, it's extremely transition heavy. So here's my little diagram. So you've got the transition in, and arguably that takes the whole of the first year, and the evidence for that is that dropout rates remain high throughout the first year, people considering whether they've made the right choice or not, and starts well before as well, although we kind of rig it in this country so that people don't know which university they're going to until a month before they go, which is some weird sort of psychological test, isn't it? I mean, it's <laughs> strange. Year two, supposedly non-transitional in the sense that, well, maybe, but it's only nine months, remember, because we're only talking September to May, and then you've got two transitional summers either side where there's a good chance the person, if they're not living uh, at home, and 80% of students still don't live at home, even though the number is increasing, so 80% of people transition over the summers, as I put in these little build-up bullets here, so they'll have two residential transitions. They'll move out of halls, they'll move back home, they'll then move into a new, probably, say, shared flat, uh, and, uh, and then they'll have another set of the same transitions in the, in, from second and third year, because very few people live in the same place both years. Some do. Uh, and then, of course, year three is a highly transitional year as well, because people typically start applying for graduate jobs at the beginning of it, so they're already re preparing for the transition out. So essentially what you've got is three years where you're barely ever settled, and you've got multiple transitions built on top of that, multiple relationship, job, and friendship transitions within that three years as well. And it's like a test of transition tolerance. Can you do it? It's always been that way, but I think we've created a more panicky atmosphere surrounding those three years, because traditionally we'd say, just go, go and spend a year practicing transitions. You know, go to somewhere far away, practice transitioning into a new life, coming back out again, mess around for a bit and experience what it's like going through beginnings and endings, because that's what a transition is. It's a qualitative change in kind rather than a change in amount. A beginning followed by, sorry, an ending followed by a beginning. Go the right way around, Ollie. Um, and yeah, it's quite normal within uh, a university to see major shifts in peer group over those three years as well. So you're leaving and moving into new peer groups. So there we go, so that's the context. Right, transition in. What does the data say? It's not just homesickness. So here's a study that, I'm, that, that, that found that, well, you can see, so they administered a mental health measure to 350 new students. Lots of high levels of clinical distress you see there, but no statistical difference between those who are living at home and those who've moved uh, away from home into halls. 
So it's not just about uh, the challenge of, of leaving home. So what is it? So thank you for sharing, to Jules for sharing this really rather good article with me, and I'm happy to share it with you. Uh, if you want, it's called Transition Distress, a Psychological Perspective, specifically on students. So there's evidence that students who arrive at university lacking the skills uh, to, to succeed there, including simple resilience strategies, self-regulation strategies, time management, relationship skills, and things like budgeting, which of course are necessary if you move into halls. Uh, and uh, remember, uh, by the way, that you can see, well not remember, but I'm going to picture this idea, which is that student halls are a developmental concept, which is a form of semi-autonomy prior to fully independent living, much like a retirement home is at the opposite end of the lifespan. It's like easing you into independent living, whereas retirement homes ease you back out again. So there you go. It's the mirror image of the retirement home. <laughs> uh, evidence suggests that students consider the university environment to be quite alien. I'm using that word, suggesting that they're not ready for it and find it very unlike anything they've experienced before. Radical change to previous friendship networks and cyberbullying and ostracism are sadly common. So these all relate to why the transition in is hard. I'm now going to flip to the transition out of university. This is a longitudinal study that I did of University of Greenwich graduates, 184 of them from all walks of degree. And we measured them three times over the course of a year. How many times? Uh, I think five minutes. Perfect. Yeah. Three phases lasted a year. We got well-being data, depression data, career status data, employment status data, they're living with their parents or not, etc. Uh, depression, so this is a CSTD, uh, CSD10. I mean, you can see lots of people, according to the CSD10, apparently show signs of clinical depression. However, cut-off le levels that are given on these questionnaires are highly arbitrary, so that doesn't mean very much. And actually, if you ever see prevalence rates based on a questionnaire, taken with a giant pinch of salt, because someone's put a line in somewhere that doesn't really exist. So, but, but what you can say but that's interesting there is that they just don't go down over the year. So they're not getting better over the 12 months on average. Living with parents, uh, more depressed if you're living with your parents after, so this is also an interesting developmental concept, moving back in with the parents after living independently. It's, uh, it's experienced by many who do so as a regressive step in development. They, they go back into an environment which they're treated like a child. And we can see, for those who do, they're more depressed, less self-acceptance, less purpose in life, less autonomy, and less satisfaction with how their career is going as well. Correlation, not cause. That's an interesting picture. We asked this question again a, a year after they'd, they'd left university. I'll just read it out to you. We sort of gave them the phrase and said, are you having one? A crisis is a time in your life during which your emotions are more negatively and unstable, uh, more negative and unstable than normal, and you experience changes and transitions that challenge your capacity to cope with stress, making you feel at times overwhelmed. Uh, during a crisis, people often question things, including their goals, values, and sense of identity, typically the last six months or more. Do you feel like you've been through one since leaving university? So we asked them that, and that, that definition is based on a lot of research I've done in the past. 33% uh, said yes, they've experienced a, a major crisis. And compared to the rest of the sample, they, they showed a lower level of environmental mastery. In other words, they felt out of control uh, over their lives. And, uh, that they, and this actually relates, we found in, in subsequent qualitative work, relates to the fact that they come out with <coughs> vastly inflated expectations of what can happen after the end of university. People have been telling them, just believe it enough, 
you're going to succeed. You're great. You know, it's going to work out. And they bump into the horrendous reality of compromise. Uh, and the reality that actually that, 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 that it's not about uh, just about pure aspiration and belief. It's about this messy fit between what's available, what you're capable of, and where you are. Oh yeah, crisis was not predict predicted by achievement in degree first. We're just as likely to get them to two ones and so on. I think that probably takes me up to time, which is good, because there are some references. And there's a nice uh, 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 radio program about quarter-life crisis in graduates. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to do questions or later? Should we just take one, and then we've got, we've got uh, let's take one now, and then we've got a discussion thing after this session as well. Any quick question for Ollie? I was just slightly laughing to myself. I think I've been in a crisis for about 44 years now, by your um, definition. Um, but I just, just that interview. it was a very um, quick, quick summary you gave. But it looked to me like slightly loaded to ask that question at the end of the 12 months. It was really inviting them to, to identify the last 12 months as, as a crisis in a way that they maybe couldn't have done at the end of a three-year degree. So that specifying a six-month period seemed... Well, it's very unfair to me. I haven't read the study. You seem to be loading it in favour of them saying, oh, yeah, that's me, crisis. Potentially. I mean, obviously, the, 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 still the considerable majority decline to, 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 to agree with it. It's completely right. confidential. So there's no sense of a kind of, uh, of it kind of being a, a self-presentation thing. It's a six-month thing I found striking. Is it's the time frame. Why six months? Oh, just we said typically last yeah. at least six months. And that was to avoid them reporting something resembling daily hassles, something which was a protracted, painful period in their life. So what was actually, what was, again, the, the prevalence of 33% pinch of salt, what was interesting is we used that to then go and interview the people who'd really struggled to find out what are the people who are really finding the post-university transition painful, what's going on? Uh, and the, again, the, what the follow-ups were fascinating and dark uh, in, a, in a way because it's such a reality check on, on, on what it means to teach at university when you realise that one of your students is working in Primark and hasn't been allowed to use a tills yet and is working how they're going to get themselves out of what is essentially uh, the realisation that where they're starting at is a pre-degree employment level that the last three years seem to have been pretty worthless. Um, some get out of that hole, some don't. Uh, but again, it's, uh, it, it, it helps. As a, I, think, I think sharing these stories with academics would allow them to build in a certain pedagogical quality to manage your expectations. It's hard out there. Uh, which... <coughs> Which is, it's not, it's not, a, it's not as, as easy a sell as, as, all the, as all the positive stuff. Okay, and we'll come back. I'd like to hear about the course you're designing yeah. as well, Ollie. But um, I think, Nigel, it's you next. Yes. Um, <laughs> talking about uh, the, the liberal arts uh, and the idea that the liberal arts help us uh, to develop and to flourish. I've been trying to uh, work out how to switch off the screen. Are you okay? Do you want to do it? Do you just do it there? Yeah. yeah. Okay, fine. This is going to sound very different, so uh, let's call the liberal arts the sciences of, and the arts of harmony, of harmonious living. Harmony refers here to an internal harmony, somebody who's at peace with their soul, their own sense of who they are, the way they lead their lives, and to external harmony to the order of the nature of the universe. And the terminology we use, that's microcosm inside, macrocosm, bigger picture outside. In ancient Greece, where the Western tradition is given its birth, in ancient Greece, this version of the liberal arts is very closely associated with the newly emerging practice of philosophy. Socrates summed up the idea. 
The unexamined life is not worth living. We might think about flourishing in that context. It was also summed up by the oracle at Delphi, a very famous epithet, know thyself. If harmony could be established between the soul and nature, between the microcosm and the macrocosm, the result potentially would be a flourishing and virtuous human being. In its inception, the liberal arts were imbued with a spirit of harmonia mundi, a harmony of the world, and an anima mundi, a world spirit tying all life and living things together. Cicero famously argued that the order in nature spoke of an intelligence and a rationality, a mind at work. It was this that, he said, enabled human beings to have prudence and wisdom and to live under justice and law, to flourish in human communities. Now, in Aristotle, as Jules said at the start, this meant eudaimonia, the good life, the best possible life. The highest human good, he phrased, lived as an end in itself and not for any other reason. Before him, Plato identified three types of people in the world, those who loved gain and profit, those who loved honour and glory, and those who loved learning and the pursuit of truth. For him, the ideal life was lived by the person with a love of education, which needed a good memory, an unflinching purpose, which could be resilience, a love of work, temperance, courage, high-mindedness, to such people he believed would come reason and wisdom, the road to the best possible way of living a human life. In ancient Greece then, and prior to Cicero, education for this harmony, that was the goal, was introduced. This included sophism, rhetoric and philosophy. They gave us the part of the liberal arts known as the trivium, and then education for understanding the harmony of the macrocosm of the universe was the quadrivium, and the quadrivium consisted of maths, geometry, music and astronomy. All of this was put under an educational program called Paideia, which was designed to create the ideal human being. And after the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century, harmony was attacked by that which didn't have harmony, precisely by the barbarians. If you lacked harmony, you were a barbarian. Liberal arts disappeared, as Jules said, to the monasteries, and the books were preserved, but many originals were lost. So we jump 800 years, and we go to the European Renaissance, which tried to retrieve Paideia as Renaissance humanism. Humanistic education again tried to bring the human and the world together. And now the emphasis was much more on the individual and the benefits specifically to each individual of reading great books, especially the ancient masterpieces. Reading books was seen to be, to use the phrase a second time, a good thing in itself. And a guy called Bruni in the 1420s wrote a treatise on literature and he likened a good book to food, to good food. He said, just as gastronomes are careful what they put in their bodies, so the mind must be fed on only the best authors. This is the beginning of the liberal arts tradition that calls itself the great books. Now, specifically for this purpose, the great books believes that reading such texts ennobles one's soul enabling, therefore, one to flourish. In addition, civic humanism in the Renaissance aimed at a society led by well-educated, well-rounded, good-natured and virtuous individuals. But harmony was still the key. 
And Jules alluded to this. When the, when the liberal arts crossed the Atlantic, went to America in the 17th century and beyond, it took these ideas of classical education and great books with it. But in the 19th century, a different version of higher education crossed the same ocean. This time, the research model modelled on Berlin, specifically Berlin University. Now, a battle was fought at this point in the States. A battle for higher education, for research and expertise, or for education in great books and humanism in the soul. The battle still gets fought today in the US. And I see signs of it about to be rehearsed in the UK. It's still between the desire for the harmonious life and the desire for training, and that will, it is hoped, lead to a successful career. So how if liberal arts is about flourishing, how has it fallen into such disrepute and perhaps decline? Let's suggest three reasons. First, the great books were not surprisingly realised to be white, male, and from, from a Western viewpoint. Second, the liberal arts had always been and continued to be an elite experience for a favourite few. And third, the economy intervened and flourishing as an individual, as we've intimated several times, came to be challenged to mean flourishing only in employment, but not in life. So where are we now? Well, perhaps virtuous citizens are no longer seen as important in higher education specifically, or even in education more generally. Perhaps they're not as important as economically productive objects. Perhaps secondly, and this is, for me this is key, and apologies, but it's been everything we've heard so far, Higher education is completely dominated by subject discipline bases and only a very few universities have programs aimed not at research but at something else. And third, obviously, the reference student satisfaction surveys turn the idea of education to freedom into an education on accountable finances, etc. Universities know the results of these changes. And it's this, surely, that's created why we're sitting in the room. It's created the perceived need for greater well-being. The universities are not going to be the solution until they understand they are their own complicity and they are part of the problem, and so on. When we are, whatever we ask ourselves as human beings to do, remember, we do this to ourselves. We all run, to quote Rousseau, headlong into the chains that are our own, that are of our own making. I just wanted to, to add two things to that from what I've heard. First, should we educate for character? First thing we should ask is what character does education have? Nobody talks about that. Education has a character when it works. Second, if education has a character, then so do students. Being a student has a character, and that does mean, I'm afraid, going into difficult territory and losing some autonomy and power in the process. And third, the word we haven't used at all today, meaning. When kids come to university, quite often it's with the hope that they're going to discover something that means something to them. And I'm not convinced that a research-based university or research-based curriculum or subject-based discipline as a curriculum is anywhere near appropriate for what we're describing. Thank you, Nigel. Um, I think that's fascinating. Um, and um, I'm going to suggest that we, I've got questions I'd love to put to Nigel, and suggest that we um, take advantage of his um, punctuality 
we go straight on to the next few talks and then come back and for the discussion. So, uh, Karen and Kieran, yeah. is you guys next? I am going to step into it. You get me started. So um, while these slides go, I'm Karen, I'm a senior lecturer in politics at Exeter University in the Cornwall campus, and um, which there's a picture of it there. This is a slightly ironic picture because you always see these sorts of images, the well-being and the good life, and this comes from the university glossies, um, of which I'm quite critical of. But we do actually live and work on a very beautiful campus, and I want to highlight the role of place. Uh, which hasn't really been discussed a lot, and how environments can enhance well-being. Um, that's okay. All right, I'll just, yeah, I'll just nod to you. Okay. So I, I'm also Director of Education and Politics in Penryn, and also Senior Tutor, so I'm doubling up on big admin roles at the moment, which is not good for my well-being. But, um, so I'm really interested in all of this from those perspectives. How can I enhance our education for students? as well as looking at what I would like to teach. So I'm looking at it both from a teacher and an administrator point of view right now. And I'm not sure I can offer much, because I'm really here to listen and learn, um, because I, these things are on my mind a lot at the moment. So um, I'm, I'm going to talk um, about a module that I started teaching last year with all of these things in mind. And it's really relevant, your, your discussion, because this is, those sort of things has been, have been really on my mind. So thanks, Jules. So as a researcher, for about the last 12 years, I've been looking at politics of well-being. This is a new book coming out, and I'm not flagging my own work here, but two chapters in this book are very relevant to these discussions, one by Jules, sorry to embarrass you, uh, and also by Catherine Eccleston, who's a politics professor who looks at the education politics, which is something that I would like to highlight to you today. Thanks. Um, so again, uh, I live in a very beautiful place in Cornwall, the university sells this uh, very aggressively, I would say, to students. Um, and the REF, TEF, target standards across the board at higher education help create a sort of standardised view of higher education, um, which is very decontextualised in terms of place. And yet the university uses place to really aggressively market a standardised view of higher education. Uh, this is Kynance Cove, where I was over the bank holiday weekend. Um, there were also a lot of people from Grenfell Tower there because the university had funded a holiday for them. I've never been prouder of an institution. Um, and it was lovely to see all of these people in that sea enjoying themselves. But this is sort of a rare experience in everyday life. Thanks. Um, this is my, more of my daily experience, probably more of Kieran's <laughs> daily experience. So Kieran has just graduated from the politics course, going into a PhD, looking at some of these issues. Um, so students come here, they spend three years, you know, their daily life is a, has a particular measure, a particular aesthetic. Um, who are these people? You know, what's their experience at university? Um, what particular culture have they arrived in? Penryn is a tiny hill town in Cornwall, uh, an ancient town. Ten years ago, a massive university campus got plunked near it. What, what has been the impact of that? Nobody can afford to live in Penryn anymore. Um, and so it's had tremendous impact, some of which uh, some of our students have been quite concerned about and have studied and talked to residents about because they want to have some meaning in what they're studying and they want to contextualise where they are. 
Thanks. So the, the sort of questions that I, I ask when, when student well-being is raised is, how does the university imagine itself? You know, what are its core values and priorities, and how does this impact on staff and students, and crucially, the local community? Um, and so I take a sort of institutional cultures approach to well-being, to student well-being, staff well-being, professional services well-being, which is a group that we haven't really discussed very much, which often take a huge burden. Um, and I talk about cultures rather than, you know, having a view of the institution as a monolith with senior, senior management at the top. That's a wrong-headed view. Um, institutions are very complex. They have all sorts of different cultures. Um, but, but this is where I'm coming from, from a politics perspective. Okay. Um, and obviously there's a lot of stuff around at the moment that I'm clocking. You know, the contemplative university, um, positive universities, which we've discussed, the Healthy Universities Network, and this idea of the good university. You know, when, when I went to my daughter's leaving party at her high school, one of her teachers said to me, make sure she goes to a good university. I think, what does that really mean? I mean, I knew what he meant. She actually came here <laughs> and then hated it and dropped out after a year because the politics course didn't give her what she really wanted. Um, so uh, what is a good university? And I've been mulling this over for a few years now and, and having discussions with people. Um, so student well-being, it puts the idea of students as a catch-all category. And yes, that's a predominant thing they're doing while they're at university, but it sort of imposes a false homogeneity on students. I mean, they are really a collection of people who happen to be studying as well as doing all sorts of other things. Um, and they come from all sorts of places. Who are they? How do they connect with this particular place, these people, this institution and its values and cultures? And very crucially, what are their opportunities to reflect critically together on all of this? So that's, that's what I'm interested in. So I developed a module last year, the first year I've taught it, called The Good Life, Theories of the Good Life, from the Agora to the American Dream. Um, and we look at all sorts of philosophers. So you could look at this as a typical you know, um, philosophy module, except it isn't because we dot around all over the place. Um, and I chose these philosophers because they're the ones that tend to be mentioned most in current well-being policy documents. So we get a lot of Aristotle, hedonism, Epicurus, we, we talk about um, Jeremy Bentham and utilitarianism, John Stuart Mill, Mary, we don't hear actually very much about Mary Wollstonecraft, in, in, um, interestingly, although she was centrally concerned with education and how it developed the person. Um, and then the capabilities approach, we hear a lot also um, theories of justice, John Rawls, and then how that was critiqued and developed by Marcia Sen, Martha Nussbaum and others. So um, we look at all of these philosophers in class and we look at all of these sort of ideas, happiness, flourishing, quality of life, hedonism, personal growth, capabilities, the role of trauma. And I take a very biographical approach to all of these people had lives, very interesting lives. Some had great trauma and that taught them the value of philosophy, of studying, of learning, of education and how that can develop you. So it wasn't sort of a simplistic view of happiness. So I'm interested in critical, practical philosophy of well-being. What do we know about well-being? How can and do we know it? What's the meaning of what we know about well-being for us, for others, for the world? Um, how should we act on this? 
And what sort of values and skills do we need to act? And these are all questions. I don't, I'm not seeking to tell students what to think. I'm seeking to raise questions critically and supportively with them. Um, and not everybody teaches the good life. I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I'm centrally interested in this topic we're discussing today as a teacher. But not everybody can teach that. If you're in engineering, it might seem a bit strange to offer a module like this. So very interested in what people have said about, you know, the sort of um, modules that cut across uh, different disciplines and how might we do that in a way that, that's not imposing our own views um, or cultural backgrounds uh, and ideas about well-being on others. How can we give students some skills and, and practical philosophies that help them in their life and figure out sort of difficult things that they might deal with? Um, and social identity formation, I think, is something that we, we perhaps haven't discussed and how that's linked to disciplines. How do we create a politics disciplinary critical friendship group in our students that really debates and enjoys that and, and finds flourishing in that. Intellectual inquiry first, and people can then link this in what, with whatever they choose in terms of their own personal growth. So it's having those intellectual stimulations and skills. Um, so an institutional approach, well-being embedded in place, in cultures, in, in relationships, practical philosophy, and you've talked about the ancient Greek method and so have you, Jules, so I'm very much trying to develop that. Um, embedding well-being in the content of what we teach, not as an extra add-on. Um, and being okay with the challenge and the discomfort and having critical friends to travel with you through that discomfort. And I just want to um, read you out very quickly. Um, I asked all the students to do a self-reflective report at the end, and it was uh, some of those actually made me cry. But I'm just going to, um, I wouldn't, I'm not putting this forward as like the best thing ever. It's, it was really ropey in some respects and I've marked your work and you've left now so I can say that. Um, but uh, so one very quick quote from a student, not Kieran. It's easy to forget that the purpose of me studying at politics at university was not only to get a degree but to deepen my knowledge on a subject I feel is really important in order to understand um, the world and to be a person that makes responsible choices. I have found that because of the rigid teaching structure at degree level, it's easy to forget why a subject is important to you. But this module with its big picture questions about life and happiness grounded me and made me reflect deeply on my own life choices. Um, so I think, you know, not all of the self-reflective reports said stuff like that. Um, that's what I'm aiming for. That's what I'm aiming for. And I just want um, Kieran to give a couple of minutes reflection on his experience. Again, don't say nice things. <laughs> Be critical. That's what we want. Uh, um, yeah, I think just broadening um, that idea that uh, not everyone can uh, necessarily teach the good life. I think the way that I experienced it was more about transformative teaching and, and thinking more about how we do teaching. So the fact is that people choose modules for very different reasons. Um, and although Karen's module descriptor mentioned that it was about ideas of the good life and ideas of well-being, I was mostly taking it because I needed more political theory to get the degree title that I wanted. Um, so people choose modules because of different assessment methods, different lecturers, and of course because of specific module content. Um, I, I think I expected a broadly chronological survey of other political theory that I had maybe covered in the past but not as in-depth. Um, but I think the thing that I mostly learned was um, how to critically reflect upon 
the normative assumptions behind those theories. And I think one of the ways that, that Karen brought that forward was in um, doing a lot of in-class work about un unpacking those assumptions, I guess. Um, and so for me, it's, it's less about, I guess, mental health uh, or mental illnesses um, and more about giving people the toolkit to deal with some of those systemic issues that maybe we all suffer from. Um, so I hadn't necessarily considered how power structures ordered ideas of the good life um, or the way that the production of knowledge featured in given policy decisions. Um, so I am a queer man in a straight relationship, for example, but I was oblivious to what some of my other queer peers might have constructed as the good life um, because I was so set in this, I guess, patriarchal, mostly neoliberal idea of what is the good life. Um, I was very, very set um, at the beginning of last year. I, like, I wanted to own a house as quick as possible um, because I wanted that feeling of autonomy, but I neglected to take account of the way that maybe the dominant neoliberal structures were encouraging me to, to pursue that desire. So I think um, perhaps the biggest thing that I got from Karen's module, and I think that perhaps as practitioners um, we can think about uh, in designing modules, is um, educating students to the power structures that surround them, and then also considering how we then re-perpetuate those things. So um, in higher education, that can mean maybe rethinking our pedagogy, um, how our classrooms recreate the same power structures we might be teaching about, um, and then how we can change this. So in my own research, for example, in my dissertation, I was looking at that issue of community engagement, and so many students that I spoke to wanted to be more engaged in the community um, and become more sustained members as maybe I had of my degree. Um, but there was a general feeling that they just didn't have the time to engage because the time demands of their degrees were so, um, so high on them. So how do we create the space for students to pursue their interests? Um, there's the students' partner's agenda or the students' change agent's agenda, but how much is that a tick box activity? Um, and I think maybe less of a specific focus on mental health issues and more of that general transformative approach to life. Um, because, for example, I hadn't even realized that I suffered from specific mental health issues um, until I could untangle the societal processes that were, I guess, engaging and uh, re-perpetuating those as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much indeed. Um, we're on time, and it's Siobhan up next. And while I'm this up, a question for uh, those who've got time at the end of this session as well, but just while I'm doing this, any questions? So you just, um, yeah. Okay, so hello, uh, I'm Siobhan. Um, I did my PhD in mindfulness and higher education. I finished about five or six years ago now. Um, I am a Breathworks mindfulness trainer. Um, I've got my PhD master's in psychology. Um, and at the moment, I'm the personal professional development lead for Southampton Medical School. So I'm working on developing um, the kind of layered, the integrated um, program of professional development, which somehow is going to support the next generation of doctors. Work in progress. Um, so first of all, can I just have a feel for what you guys know about mindfulness? Like, you must know something you can't possibly escape. So maybe like in terms of how much, like one, nothing, ten, I'm a guru. So, oh, you were going for 10. <laughs> so, okay, hands up, just so I get a feel. 
this one. <laughs> that's just that's just a greeting, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's not wanting to rate mindfulness on one to ten. Yeah, yeah, wide wide man. Okay. Um, so normally when I do things like this, I start off with a little video, um, and then I get the definition of mindfulness from the group because um, A, definition is just a bit dull, and B, I don't necessarily think if I say a few words, it means you understand what I'm saying. Um, but as I don't have 10 minutes to do that, I'm just going to start with um, mindfulness basically as a way of being kind of in the present moment with acceptance and non-judgment towards your experience. Um, and it can be used as a kind of way of being, and the term can also be used as a particular practice and often they're used interchangeably, which can lead to a wee bit of confusion. So, I was thinking about the best way to, um, to kind of talk about um, mindfulness in this context, um, and I, I, this is a variation of a talk I recently gave at the Higher Education Academy. Um, so I thought I could talk you through the thought process of what we might do with our medical students as a way of perhaps you thinking about the issues around uh, mindfulness in your institutions. Um, okay. So the first question seems really simple, but I don't actually think it is. It's um, why do we want or need this? And generally, so I've, I've been doing this for a long time, you know, over, well over 10 years now. And Usually the more enthusiastic people are, the more worried I am about what they're going to say, because they're, they're just way too excited. Um, generally it's sort of, well we want it, um, it's, it's, it's going to be good, and you dig a wee bit deeper, people kind of don't necessarily know why. Oh well it's good for students. Okay, so it's good for stress and depression. Anything else? Okay, and that's kind of usually the, the limit of knowledge. Um, so looking at the research, um, there's a huge, huge growth um, in what's out there. And you've got papers out there on mindfulness for everything from stress, anxiety, parenting, you know, dog sitting, there's mindfulness for everything. And basically, if you search for it, you'll find a paper on it. Um, but the, the main bulk of the research is generally on mindfulness for stress and mindfulness for depression. So mindfulness-based positive therapy is in the NICE guidelines and is available on the NHS. Um, and around 2004, just when things start to leak, that's when the Oxford group, um, led by Mark Williams, um, started publishing on mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So that's kind of what led to the big push. Um, so when I was kind of talking to my colleagues at Southampton and trying to kind of start thinking through, well, why might we want mindfulness for our students? Um, and this is just, a, this is just a, a few points. There are many different points you could use. Um, okay, so one is the idea about this transition to university, and in fact for our medical students, I'm building on your slide, I mean it's basically transition after transition after transition, they don't stop, it's a roller coaster. Um, you've got the idea of mindfulness for student distress, so that's also a little bit more complicated, this will come to later. So there's all kinds of, of, of reasons for distress. For our medical students, you know, day one, um, you know, they're in the anatomy lab, um, and they're absolutely coming face to face with life and death um, or they're going through their birth experience. You have an 18 year old arrive in the labour ward. It's kind of shocking for them. So there's, there's a whole lot going on there. Um, you've got the idea of mindfulness training in terms of academic performance. So we know that there's some great research out there by um, 
a guy around mindfulness and uh, cognitive flexibility and problem solving. There's stuff around memory. There's all the stuff around attention. Um, again, the list goes on. So there's lots of quite solid reasons why you might want to bring in mindfulness in terms of academic performance. Um, for us, there's also just the idea about we're training uh, or teaching tomorrow's doctors. So because mindfulness is available in the NHS, it's something that they should be aware of. Um, the same goes for psychologists and many other health professions, certainly. Um, we've also got the kind of push to preparing students for the NHS, and that's if they decide to stay. And most of them aren't staying, they're living it after a couple of years. Um, and I've just come from a, a session this morning on uh, resilience in medical education. And part of that is driven from genuine care, part of that is driven from just fear because all of the doctors are leaving, because they're exhausted and the system is broken. And there are huge issues then about where does the responsibility lie? And with things like mindfulness training, does the put that responsibility for the organisational chaos on the individual because they just need mindfulness and then they're going to just have to suck it up and deal with it? Or is that about actually, with things like mindfulness training, supporting and empowering tomorrow's doctors to speak out and sort of be more about agents of social change, which is where I would lean. Um, but that's often really misunderstood when people are talking about mindfulness in this context because they think that mindfulness is being very passive and just accepting whatever's coming at you, which really isn't the case. Um, We've also got the idea that there is some evidence out there, certainly in psychology, that when people undergo mindfulness training, um, they actually have um, better outcomes with their patients. And it's generally thought that this is because they're actually truly present with them and listening. So A, the person feels better. It could also be readily argued that they're more likely to pick up a vital clinical information if they're truly present versus in their mind going kind of crazy and spitting out. So. There are lots and lots of different reasons why a university may choose to bring mindfulness um, in. I think usually, when I've spoken to people, they, they, they haven't thought this through. They just think, yeah, we want it, let's do it. But these questions underpin everything else. And I would say to a certain extent, this really has a lot to do with the political aspect in terms of who's funding it and why, and what is the agenda of the university, and what are the broader public agendas at the time. Um, so thinking about mindfulness and higher education and what our student needs, our students need. So it's quite important just to be conscious that there are um, sort of clinically focused groups. So you've got groups for, um, you know, for um, depression, for anxiety, which are run by mindfulness trainers um, who have a clinical background. Um, you also have programs like mindfulness-based stress reduction, breadworks, and many others, which are run by people without a clinical background. Um, and of course, there's the issue that often these groups aren't neatly separated. And even if you run a non-clinical group, you're highly likely to have students with clinical needs in there because just of the makeup of, you know, depression and anxiety in the population. So um, it's a little bit complicated in terms of what we're actually going to do. So after having got that far and kind of having thought about your population, clinical, non-clinical, mixed, having thought about why you want it, 
then you have to start thinking about what type of program might you take. So you've got the kind of established mindfulness programs at the top, um, taught by mindfulness teachers who are now accredited. I'm a Brithworks mindfulness teacher and I have my certificate to prove it, despite the fact I was teaching mindfulness quite successfully and have papers to show significant changes for about you know six or seven years prior to that. It's just the climate's changed. Um, so you've got established mindfulness programs, you've got integrated lifestyle programs, so the health enhancement program is run by um, Craig Hassard at Monash University. They have a fantastic MOOC on mindfulness. Craig Hassard has been, I've had a couple of workshops with him actually, he's over bringing um, the pro this program to um, Leicester and Warwick Medical Schools. There's five minutes left. Yeah, I've got any glasses. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you it's pretty it's fine. Yeah, it's very Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> um, so yeah, so what's different about a program like this is that rather than being sort of an eight-week mindfulness program, this is a sort of integrated lifestyle program. And the approach he's taken, which is kind of cool, but slightly opposed to the first one, is where he trains up um, university staff. So these are not mindfulness experts. Um, but they have a series of tutorials. So in a way, it's got quite a cool staff development aspect as well. Um, but there is a little bit of tension between the general mindfulness boss and you know these newbies saying you don't have to be an expert, um, which I think is really fascinating. I love that kind of tension. It's incredibly fun. Um, so then you've got people like me who made a kind of adapted program. So I made uh, mindfulness-based COVID with university life as part of my PhD, and then afterwards I got really disillusioned by it. I thought, well, what do I do with this now? So I've got some papers, the final papers just come off, and this was delivered to be a free resource um, that um, teachers in higher education could pick up and use if they had um, sort of some sort of experience of, of mindfulness at that time. So, this is sort of 2006, so it's a different context now. Now I would suggest that people had some basic mindfulness teacher training before doing that. Um, so you've got lots of other adaptive programs as well. You've got body-based programs. So um, there's evidence out there that um, you know it, it doesn't have to be called mindfulness-based to be mindfulness. Um, I've got Buddhist meditation here. Really, what I'm saying with that, if you could argue, all of that is Buddhist meditation. I'm saying. Um, meditation taught within a Buddhist context is really what I mean. Um, and then you've got contemplative pedagogy, which is kind of what I'm dipping my toes into now, and I think it's absolutely fantastic. It just kind of builds on a little bit of what Nigel said in a way, sort of in a side way. Um, and it's about ways of being with learning, ways of being with your education. So two of my heroes, um, um, uh, MJ Barker um, and Stephen Stanley um, are really on the cutting edge of this in terms of mindfulness. So MJ Barker's got a great blog where she does um, a zine, which is about social mindfulness. So again, the emphasis is on mindfulness for social change and mindfulness for yourself. Um, Stephen Stanley is a social psychologist, and he has students, in terms of um, social psychology, going into environments and sitting and just observing and then just noticing what that's like. Um, okay, so again, it may be that more than one approach is helpful. It's bound to be that more than one approach is helpful. I'd just like to put out there that one thing I've found is that particularly within mindfulness and the whole mindfulness-based world, um, people get really into their thing. 
it's very personal. It's very, very personal. And I know that I can be slightly irritating with a lot of people when I challenge them on that, because it's, it's helpful. I think it's healthy, but still. Um, and I think this probably comes from the fact that when you're teaching mindfulness, you need to have your own practice. And when you have your own practice, it's from a particular sort of trend, uh, tradition or viewpoint, and it's very, very personal to you. And so it just, it's a little bit more than just another thing that you're teaching. So that when you're talking about some higher education, it's just worth being aware that everybody has their thing, and it can be really personal. And I don't think it's a bad thing, but I think it's something that needs to be on the table. Two minutes. Two minutes. Um, okay, so building on from that, those questions, we're kind of thinking about how how do you deliver any of this? So mostly things are delivered face to face. Well, that's where the evidence base is. Um, there is um, some research out there now that um, building on what someone I was coming to, well, just coming in was saying um, that. There's evidence that mindfulness-based cognitive therapy when delivered online is just as effective as when delivered face-to-face. Um, -face. Um, there are all sorts of other issues in there around you know, gender and health and loads and loads of reasons. Um, you've also got blended learning options, so you could have um, part of the core training and teaching online and then coming together in a group. Um, and there's evidence for all of these things, and there's a great systematic review, and I've forgotten the name of it, but there's about 60 studies of mindfulness and higher education in it. Um, if you have a little Google for that, you'll find it's a systematic review. Um, and then we're also thinking about one-to-one -one small groups or the whole cohort. So one of the biggest barriers to mindfulness in education in terms of the current model is um, it fits with 15 people and one facilitator in eight weeks, and that just doesn't work for a whole cohort or a whole university. Um, yeah, so that's really um, a kind of a summary, um, and there'd be a lot more I could go into, but basically, um, yeah, it's about thinking it through. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so we're going to let the tea come in, we're going to get some tea, and then by four o'clock we've got uh, some discussion of the last session.